0: It is the Fear of Science. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to The Fear of Science, the show that dives into the wide world of science and science-adjacent topics to demystify, debunk, and delight. Each podcast episode features a new fear, along with special guests, surprises, and discoveries along the way. My name is Daniel Chai.
1: And I'm Jeff Porter.
0: And today we are here to discuss uh, a brand new fear, which is the fear of alcohol. Now, uh, uh, Jeff, but before we meet our, our two guests, I, I would like to get to know you. You know, we've been friends for a number of years and uh, we've attended gatherings in the before times, of course. Yes. Um,
1: well, and- we, we attend gatherings in the after times as well, it's just
0: virtual yes absolutely <laughs> you know, uh, uh jeff for for you know for for yourself um you know we're we're talking about the fear of alcohol uh do you do you raise a glass do you do you pint yeah i
1: i do drink um I'm not a big drinker though it's it's never kind of been been my thing you know, I got into like craft beer for a little bit because I live in east van, so I have no choice um but yeah, I've, I've never been, I think besides my early 20s, I think I drank a lot in my early 20s. And then I just kind of got over the party stage. And I'm like, all right, we're done now.
0: Right, right. Uh, for for myself, uh, you know, in, in high school, I definitely remember, uh, you know, the, the pressure to drink. Um, oh, and sure. and yeah. as an adult, I, you know, uh, whether it be from, from marketing whether it be from you know, social pressures, you know, I also feel that, that pressure as well. And so I, I think that you know, fear of alcohol is definitely you know, uh, something that people do feel, which is why, Jeff, I'm very glad that we have two special guests on the episode today to help us explore this topic. Now, first, our first special guest recently celebrated five years of sobriety. Uh, they run a Vancouver-based sober meetup group called Van Sober and hosts Bro Briety, Bro Briety, a podcast focused on sobriety, mental health, and wellness for men. He also does other stuff in his spare time. Please say hello to Derek Bolin, gentlemen. Thank you.
2: It's great to be back.
0: <laughs> Glad to have you here, uh, Bro Briety. That is a great name for a podcast you know
2: the the name came to me it feels like sobriety sometimes like the online sobriety community is one of the places where the maybe one of the only places where men are underrepresented um so wanted to to start a a podcast that kind of catered to that and the name the name reinforced that like i need to be doing this so Wonderful. Thank you. And
0: here to also uh, share their journey with us, we're very glad to have our second guest joining us in January of this year. Our second special guest celebrated 19 years of continuous sobriety. He has spent the better part of the last two decades working with people who struggle with addiction and substance abuse disorder. With a background in addictions counseling, he brings his learned and lived experiences to helping others get sober one day at a time. Please help us say hello to Graham.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on. Wow, I sounded like a professional in that intro. It's almost (laughs) like I wrote it myself.
0: Yeah. Um, I hit all the buzzwords. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, uh, I'm very glad to, to have both of you here uh, with you know uh, with uh, your your own personal experiences but also experiences in, in helping people and uh, you know first off I want to say you know bravo for for doing that because I think you know there uh, it's what this c- community needs and it's what you know people should be encouraged to seek out help and sometimes it's not easy to sometimes we feel like mm-hmm. we can't yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, So we'll go into the first question. So the same question we we start off with every episode. Uh, Why are people I guess normally it's why are people afraid of of the subject. But in this case, I think it's more should people be afraid of alcohol? It's a better question. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone goes into a liquor store and sees a bottle of alcohol and runs the other way. They probably Mm -hmm. just wouldn't go into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not—it's—it's it's not like it's a, a tripophobia, you know. That is a real. Thing. Uh, yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, for for myself, you know, uh, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, I can definitely understand, you know, why, you know, people, you know, why some people are afraid of alcohol or should people be afraid of alcohol? You know, perhaps it's, it's more of a, should people be respectful of, of alcohol, their mm. own experiences, you know, um, and, and perhaps there are people who are perhaps more susceptible to how alcohol affects them in, in other ways. But, you know, that's just from, uh, that's a layman's thought on that, I guess. Mm
2: yeah I mean, I'd say that I don't know that every everyone should be afraid of alcohol, like um there are plenty of people out there who are capable of having a drink here or there and and not ending up blacked out or face down in a pile of cocaine every time they do it um I am not one of those people, so uh my relationship with alcohol is a little more tenuous. I think that that maybe rather than being afraid, people should be a little more concerned about uh, alcohol and the extent to which we as a society have kind of normalized misuse of it. Uh, like binge, binge drinking is is really like normalized and widely accepted. Um, you have... Uh, binge drinking drinking is a coping mechanism for like relationships or parenting we've seen this whole like wine mom culture spring up lately which is uh telling moms that hey you being being a mom is hard reward yourself with with alcohol uh which is pretty problematic so uh i i that's definitely made me a little a little concerned
3: yeah yeah i uh it's, it's, it's interesting. I agree with what Derek has to say. And and the other thing that sort of happened in society is we kind of sugarcoat um, the actual effects of alcohol. And like, I'm by no means, uh, you know, a member of some prohibition movement or temperance movement. I don't believe in abolishing alcohol or anything really for that matter, along those lines. Um, but uh, there are Huge social and personal effects that come from even just moderate drinkers, Um, you know, whether that is driving under the influence, uh, which occurred, which has happens. you know, still kills people at alarming rates, domestic violence, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the traumatic childhood experiences from parents who struggle on and off with alcohol. And then like, you know, not to bring the major downer right away. Um, but, you know, we are currently in this opioid epidemic where we're seeing people die at large numbers, uh, five people a day in British Columbia is the current, current numbers that I'm seeing.
1: That's um,
3: insane. But what people aren't really talking about and what my lived experience has been is I, I you know, as a guy who, who is sober and has been around people struggling to get sober I have watched healthy, 36-year-old men die with alcohol. No other drugs in their system. No cocaine. No no heroin. No nothing. Straight up alcohol killed them. Uh, uh, one of my sponsors, uh, sponsees, three years ago, was found in his apartment. He was a 36-year-old tradesman. Uh, he worked uh, for the school board as a maintenance person, and and he was found in his apartment with uh, with just uh, you know bottles. And that was it. Wow. Wow. So like, so, you know, the interesting thing too, is like, for those who are afflicted uh, with the, you know, with uh, substance misuse disorder or what we call alcoholism, when I walk into the liquor store, um, it's not like a, you know, a a fear where I'm like, oh, I need to stay away from that. I have this weird affliction where, where it's like the thing that will kill me is like the thing that I want. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like, you know, if I was, you know, if I had a fear of heights, you know, you know, I wouldn't be like, Oh man, I'm going avoid- to go stand on the edge <laughs> of that cliff.
2: You know? You'd avoid it altogether.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instead, yeah. yeah. it's like, hmm, that's a shiny bottle that will ruin my life. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's a shiny bottle. Well,
1: and as Daniel said earlier as well, like it's the peer pressure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, well, I shouldn't say especially being a guy, but I only know being a guy because I am a guy. Uh, but, you know, I worked, uh, I worked in tech for a while and the pressure, um, of, of going out to drink, um, like it's almost an expectation, uh, in some tech companies. I hear they're getting a little bit better, um, now that I don't work in tech. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, there's a whole culture around it and you want to socialize with your peers, um, and you want to be part of the team, um, and you don't want to look like, a loser ordering, you know, a ginger ale or something like that. Right. Um, so there's just that massive peer pressure attached to it as well.
2: Well, I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day, and she's uh, HR manager for for one of the largest companies in Canada, and she she partners with uh, women in like director and above roles to kind of help them navigate the corporate culture. And she said that um, she had a couple sober women under her wing, and they felt that that being sober in the workplace. Uh, is actually a, a career limiting move because of all these these bonding experiences or conversations that take place and are centered around alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'll discuss it in my story later how how the opposite was kind of true for me. But because you look at the impacts of alcohol in in the workforce, and like nobody wants a sloppy drunk at work events. Nobody wants. Uh, people missing days of work due to hangovers or alcohol related illnesses, or, you know, they're still on a bender, but um, the, the extent to which uh, a lot of workplaces will normalize drinking as, as a part of corporate culture is, is pretty surprising.
3: Yeah. It's interesting though. I, I have started to see a push uh, in corporations to no longer, and I think the pandemic's actually going to help move that along is a push yeah. towards getting away from parties Uh, Especially Christmas or holiday parties and stuff, because it it, like we're you know we're in a a revolution in the workplace with regards to how we treat one another and stuff like that. And the last thing any major company needs is to pour booze on a party, you know. And so they're starting to see the corporate liabilities behind that, because that's when you have people like you know. Should we fear alcohol? Was the original question. It's like you have people who are not acting like themselves because they are you know socially lubricated. And then they begin to change and they say or do things they would not normally say or do not everybody, but you know, I mean, sometimes like what I've noticed about the holiday parties, cause I used to work the holiday party circuit when I worked in comedy. And um, you'll, a lot of people will have the opportunity to get drunk in front of their colleagues when they're used to getting drunk alone at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah and it's like, and they're, they're a liability. Right. Well, what yeah. I remember from, from company parties is, um. All right. Uh, all right, everyone. Uh, you get two to start. We're going to be playing some games later for a chance to win more drink tickets. Yeah. <laughs>
3: like, you know. Yeah, uh, and people would be like, like I've watched people go to like an open bar and drink like, every single time, like it was a, a right. gift uh, from the heavens. You know, and it's like you know, just because it's an open bar doesn't mean you yeah. have to drink all of it. <laughs> right, but there's yeah. it's almost like I I don't know. There's something weird about. I've noticed about North American culture, especially Canada, for some reason, that we really approach alcohol like it's, um, we we don't really evolve out of like, how how would you, and I I know this is a general statement. I don't mean to make general sweeping statements, but people tend to drink like they're still in high school, but they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's like the the template for how they drank as youth is the template for how they drink as adults until their body catches up with them.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's point.
3: You just can't do the keg stand anymore. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. but after four beers, it's like, watch me do this keg stand. It's like, you know, Bill, you're 45, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one, I just want to say one other thing around uh, what Derek said is, uh, you know, about the limiting nature of, of being sober. I, I did experience that early on in my, in my career and stuff, or I thought I was, and then it dawned on me one day, like, cause I used, you know, I worked, uh, you know, as a film and TV actor, and I used to think um, this was going to kill my career, right? And then I started to meet way more sober actors in Los Angeles and stuff like that, and um, I started to realize I never once booked a job in a bar. I booked every single job I booked in an audition room still called sober. The jobs that I booked weren't like the, it all you know for actors. If there's young actors out there listening, it's like all those people that are promising you those gigs at the bar. Um, that gig's not going to happen.
1: It's not.
0: <laughs> I have to go. Uh, now you know. Um, uh, for you know, uh, uh, there's a part of me. It's like you know, as you mentioned, Graham. Like, oh, you know, maybe maybe people are drinking, uh, you know, like they were in high school. To to uh, you know, because because we're afraid of getting old, and we don't want to let go of that high school you know experience. But you know, are are there are there other reasons why why people drink? Why society tells us to drink? You know, whether it's like you know a liquid courage, hmm. you know, um, you, you know, like oh okay, I'm gonna I'm going to I'm going to uh, slam a shot before I you know again in the before times. Before I go and talk to that pretty, pretty person, that good looking person at the other, other end of the bar, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is alcohol mainly, you know, I mean, as well as addiction, but like, are, do people use alcohol as an excuse to try and get over their fears? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh you know, for me personally, like one, 100%. I used it to control uh, fear, fear of social situations, fear of myself, fear of failure, fear of basically anything, uh, just general anxiety, uh, sadness, anger, low self-esteem, discomfort with myself or others, conflict. Um, I, I drank basically to, to control all of these things but i want to be clear that like it did, it didn't help me control any of it if if anything it amplified it and made it worse but it gave me the perception that oh i could i can have a drink and steal my nerves or i can have it it's not the alcohol isn't doing that for you like there's not a physio- physiological effect that alcohol has where it can make you stronger uh, in the face of emotions. It's it's all in your mind. And it was a lie I kept telling myself for why I needed to take that drink. Mm. Yeah. We yeah. all
1: know that only only potions of power in D D do that. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: that's
2: <laughs> yeah, that's
3: the <silly>. it's <laughs> it's interesting too because like, you know, we it, it's important to sometimes sort out between who we're talking about, right? Because for most people, Alcohol is conviviality, friendship, creative imagination, connecting with others, and a feeling that all is right in the world in that moment. But for those that are, that are afflicted and don't know, or don't know yet, um, alcohol, like what Derek was saying, is, is a salve on top of uh, you know, what we commonly refer to now, uh, almost too much, as trauma. And trauma is an inability to recognize safety. Right? That's the best way it's ever been told to me. Trauma is an inability to recognize safety. When somebody is in trauma or they're in their post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever, um, they, are, they do not recognize safety. And so what is, the, what is that word that we use for someone who's not recognizing safety? Fear. Right. Mm-hmm. And so f- fear, like Derek said, comes in a thousand different faces and forms. Fear is like, um, you know, uh, how I fear, f- feel people perceive me, how I perceive myself, like the insecurities and stuff like that, these rot insecurities. And then alcohol gets put on top of it and is this salve and it's perfect and all is right. And then there's that convivality, friendship and creative imagination with other people. But then there comes a point in time when it doesn't work anymore. And that goes with all behavioral addictions, whether it's our phones, social media, steroids, uh, our body image, like whatever it is, gambling that people are dealing with, there's going to be the thing that they put on top. And then eventually it doesn't work for them anymore. And then they're left with the same fears that didn't go away because there was a numbness that took over for a period of time. And that could be a year, two years, three years, whatever it is until, you know, ultimately ultimately our, our, our job is to push beyond the trauma and heal from it. Not to keep on medicating it, right? So um, this might lead into uh, another question
1: I have as well. Um, But how do you know that you have a problem? How do you know that that you're not just drinking with your buddies and you have it under control? And you know that might kind of lead into my other question of, uh, you know, what's your story? Each of your story with alcoholism. Um
2: you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, of standard, like clinical criteria. Um, but I think I would start saying, uh, if, if like, it does, you don't have to meet the clinical criteria to, to determine that you have a problem. Um, if you've ever wondered if you have a problem or if you've ever Googled how much is too much to drink, or if you've ever Googled, I'm an alcoholic, or, uh, even if you're just not happy with the person you are when you drink or shit keeps happening that uh you're ashamed of or you're not proud of um that's a pretty strong indicator and there's there's a growing movement of people um, who really believe that that you don't need a rock bottom to sober up? You don't need this yeah. life breaking moment to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol and look at what it's contributing to your life. Um, I have a ton of respect for those people because that is not my story at all. I went all the way to the bottom, but um, you know, good for them. Um, clinically, uh, you know, Graham could probably speak to that better than I could, but I'd say like just the the inability to stop or uh, you know, it's it's causing problems in your life and you're willing to like glaze those over in, in pursuit of the next drink. Mm-hmm. Um, we're what, three weeks into dry January right now. And uh, prior to my sobriety and me quitting drinking forever, I was the kind of guy who would try dry January every year, make it to the first weekend, whatever that whether that was three days or seven days, and then just crack like I could mm-hmm. not make it a month without drinking. So uh, mm-hmm. That should have been a sign for, for me that I had a problem.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agreed there, Derek. There is this, there's this really cool kind of movement that's happening now that I see online and stuff like that, which is um this like kind of sober, curious movement that's happening. And, and it's, I think it's um a really good indicator of an intuitiveness of a, of a new generation of people and stuff like that who are actually looking and saying like, Hey, does alcohol serve me? And if so, you know, um, in what capacity and do I actually need it? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky my, my partner doesn't drink. She just, she just doesn't drink and, um, cause she didn't like it. And, uh, and so I get to be around somebody who's like sort of part of that generation of like people who've chosen not to drink, um, without having to do, um, what I had to do to figure it out. Right. Um, but to get back to your question, Jeff, the, you know, if we want to get like clinical about it in, in the, in the seventies, um, I think it was the American Medical Association, uh, in conjunction with some other people, including like Carl Young and um, you know and um, uh, 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 Bill from uh, Bill Wilson and uh, and Dr. Bob Smith from Alcoholics Anonymous. They came up with this idea, uh, and there was another doctor too. Um, what's his name again? Uh, Silkwood, so Silkworth. So they came up with this idea that there was two primary symptoms. So I always ask people these two questions: one, when you drink do you have control over the amount that you consume? I mm-hmm. E um, when you have one, do you accidentally have three or when you have one, do you have 12? Like it doesn't mean you get shitfaced every time, but do you often overshoot the mark often if you're being truly honest? So, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's the first one. And that's, the, that's what we call the phenomenon of craving. And I know that this is like sort of like older terminology that's been used since the thirties or whatever, but I can't find anything more accurate. I, like <laughs> I really can't. And well, so, you're saying
2: that, and I'm like, oh yeah, that that describes me for sure. Like, yeah.
3: yeah, I put one into my system, and then all of a sudden, I I have a different reaction. And so the reaction I have, the reaction a normal person has, is wow, this beer is filling. Oh, I feel a little bit light and bubbly. The reaction I have is, I can't believe how quickly the first half of that glass went. Where's the waitress? Right. Oh. So I'm I'm already on to the next one. And, and then if I stop abruptly, what happens is I begin to get a headache, I get dehydrated and stuff, because so, what's happening is there's a physical phenomenon of craving that's occurring inside of my body. Um, and so that's the first aspect is, is the physical thing. Can you control the amount that you consume? And then the second component is when you quit or try to cut back, what is the result? And if the result is that you often fail, like Derek uh, Ill- illustrated was that every year in January, he would try and fail. So if, if, if my result is always that I fail to quit when I try to quit, then that's the mental component. So you're yeah. doubly screwed if you have this diagnosis of, of alcoholism, which is one, I can't control the amount of, that I consume because of my body. And then two, my mind always brings me back to it. So I'm always right. like, hmm, hmm, yesterday was a horrible day. I shouldn't have drank. I quit drinking this morning. I'm never going to drink again. And then like by like, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, I'm like, maybe I'll have a beer. Yeah. it's like a, it's it's a mental health issue you Yeah. Know? like normal people it sounds, don't have-
1: very, it sounds similar to um i've never i've never been alcoholic but i was addicted uh to cigarettes uh for a long time yeah and it sounds very similar to that you know i'd go out for a smoke and and i'd always say oh i'm just gonna have one smoke just to kind of keep me going and it was never just one smoke yeah. or i would just be like um, every time I would quit, I would say, I'm, I'm only going to smoke when I drink. But then I would drink so I could smoke um, and, and kind of get around my own rules.
2: Just to enable and, yourself. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. But, you know, then eventually I'm just like, I think it was for me, it was just like realizing the toll it was doing on my body. And I was just yeah. like, I need, to, I need to stop.
3: And you were in a cycle of addiction. And that's the thing is like, we'll, we'll impose these horrific things on people, these, these uh, labels like willpower. Oh, you lack willpower. Mm -hmm. It's like I don't lack willpower. I quit every day, but I keep on going back to it. And I'm not a person that lacks will or power. But I'm like, but I, but when it comes to this particular situation, I am baffled. I am baffled. I keep coming back to it. And I was, I was the same way with cigarettes too. I'd always go back to it. Hated it it for the last ten years. I smoked.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. We uh, we did um, an episode recently, um, a second part to our fear of weight. Um, and it actually kind of sounds very similar um, to that. Is that you know all these uh, weight loss companies are just saying you need to have the willpower, you need to like power through this to lose weight, but no one ever focuses on the mental health part of it and the fact that you know you're you're treating an an addiction to an extent. Yeah. Um And how do you treat that addiction? That's the most important question.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And Russell Brand has a great book on it. It's called recovery. And it and he basically outlines the 12 steps, but in layman's terms, I suggest the audio. it's really good. Yeah. But he's like, you know, for him, it started with chocolate and it ended with heroin. And it was always that he just bottom line is he didn't heal the trauma and the trauma kept coming back even when he was sober. Right. And I, and I can attest to that too. Cause mine has, you know, Daniel knows me. I have, I had like at one point I had 200 pairs of sneakers sober. <laughs> like, i just like buy something for joy and dopamine you know what i mean
0: and that's an investment <laughs> <laughs>
3: until, until there's a pandemic and i'm like why do i have thousands of dollars of useless shit? <laughs> <laughs> i
1: have the same thing but hero clicks uh that nobody cares about well, hero, we'll, yeah. hero clicks <laughs> don't, don't even get me into it it's a game
2: that's all like um, little little figurines right. uh yeah. But
1: again, nobody cares about
2: that. I have three thousand
1: figures, <laughs> <laughs> and I will never be able to sell. Um, that. So, do people? Um, are there people who are just more prone to addiction?
2: I mean, I I have feelings on it. Like you know, there's been this body of silence for a long time that has said like uh, alcoholism is a disease, it's genetic. Um, and I love a lot of the stuff that Graham has been saying, cause it's in line with my thinking, which is like, like there might be some genetic traits that, that can cause alcohol or substance use disorder, but, um, there's a wider body of study and everyone I talk to has, has a story about how, um, there's, there's trauma in their life, or they, they used it, they started using alcohol to, um, to control uh, anxiety or depression or feelings of isolation or sadness. or like there were these complex emotions um, that they developed either either as a child or, or in early adulthood, and that led to them seeking out something. Um, to basically keep those feelings at bay. Like the brain is wired in a, to seek pleasure and reject pain. And what ends up happening with all addictions, like it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or weed or porn or gambling or uh, anything. It, yeah, like <laughs> any yeah. of it. it's It's people turn to these things to kind of fill fill a a hole in themselves and to manage these these emotions and just avoid the pain that they're feeling so um when they say it's it's genetic i think a lot of the time that can also be traced to like i want to i'm not a doctor i'm not a scientist i don't understand any of this stuff beyond the like book i read or the odd youtube video but like it's it can be that children in households develop alcoholism from alcoholic parents not because they inherited it but because of what they encountered in that house Um, Um, yeah exactly like it's and it's not even that it's it's did they manage to learn manage um, pain or shame uh or isolation or was there abuse or and all these things take place in houses uh where alcoholism is so was there some events uh or repeated events or an environment that contributed them to to developing that
3: yeah yeah i toss like i know we toss around the word trauma a lot lately and um and the thing is like, i just wish we had a better way because i don't want to compare the trauma of um you know a, a soldier uh, you know or uh, being shot at or or a person in a in a, in a a detainment center on the southern coast of the United States or southern border of the United States to my trauma because my trauma was I was a sensitive kid who had his feelings hurt. But for that five-year-old kid, um, that begun the cycle because I had no tools to manage right. that behavior, right? and Or manage those feelings and stuff like that. And like my story is that I moved a lot as a kid. And so there was always this feeling of insecurity so that when I found Um, booze, which gave me that connection that I spoke about earlier, that creative imagination connection with people, I hit the ground running and it was the salve until it didn't work. Um, But um, yeah, so like, I think think a lot of people find themselves in, in situational alcoholism or situational substance abuse. And it just is a matter of how how long they carry the mantle for you know we we have an expression that your bottom you can find your bottom when you stop digging right and so if you are having problems that are associated with your drinking and there is sort of like this disorganization inside your emotional well-being then maybe there is something that you need to address there um and now with regards to the generational thing i don't know if it you know they have uh you know isolated a certain gene that might make people more uh susceptible to addiction but like I mean, I don't know anything about that. I'm not a scientist, but I do know that, you know, my parents drank when I was a kid, but are they alcoholic? I don't know. It's not my business. I, I wouldn't call them alcoholic, but then let's go like, you know, now we're starting to talk about generational trauma. So then let's go back a generation. So going back a generation, my family was um, working, uh, working class or not, not even working class, poor Scottish, like people who lived in a war-torn Glasgow that was bombed bombed in World War II, and they made bricks in a brick factory. These are not high, uh, you know, uh, high educated people. These are not not that alcohol cares about education, but they're not like, I don't know who they are, really. Like, they're my grandparents. But then let's go back a generation before them. And it's like, I don't know them. So if like, I literally couldn't tell you who my great grandparents were or what they did, really. Um, so, if you look at that as generational trauma or generational alcoholism, I can't tell you if it's generational or not. did it right. skip a generation and then I got it, but my brother didn't like I don't know right yeah,
1: yeah.
0: now um you know uh, uh another reason why I'm very glad to have both of you of you on here as well is you know because both of you are you know as mentioned in your intro uh, both of you are also helping to you know uh Helping support people who are going in the same journey that the both of you are traveling as well. So you know, I wanted to get to know a little bit more about how you know you uh, got to you know your respective places where uh, you are helping people with with uh, their journeys. For you know, for yourself. Derek, you know, I'm curious you, again, you run the podcast Bro Briety, which again, uh, I'm here to say one of the best podcast names I've ever heard. It
3: really is. Yeah. When you <laughs> sent you, e- you. when you sent that email, I looked at it and I was like, Oh man, that's
0: great. <laughs> it <laughs> <laughs> does. It does. Yeah. So, uh, and you also do run a Vancouver based sober meetup group called Van Sober. So, uh, you know, uh, thank you for doing that for, for people in the community, you know, uh, what inspired you to, to create these places? Um, you know, was it, uh, yeah. What what were you hoping to achieve? And can you tell us a little bit about both?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when, when I personally got sober five years ago, um, there weren't a ton of options available, uh, at least that I was aware of. There was, um, there was AA, obviously, which is like um, exactly like how it's been portrayed in media. Basically, like you meet in in a church or at a meeting hall somewhere, and you drink shitty coffee, uh, <laughs> and it's awesome for the the fellowship. But I went a couple times, and I was I was raised Catholic, so the the higher power stuff just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I uh, and it was like the vulnerability that people had there scared the shit out of me because I was a guy who would like. Just like hid his feelings behind alcohol his entire adult life. Uh, And I couldn't believe this. I was like, that is never going to be me. I can't do that. I'm out of here. So I went to two meetings. Uh, Everyone in AA, um, like I don't want to shit talk the program because everyone I met, even over those two meetings, were just like the most genuine, sincere, supportive people. Uh, and, And they were really incredible. But I was like, I can't do this. So my early sobriety was basically just like me white knuckling my way at home watching Netflix felt totally isolated and and really shitty about it because my entire identity had been the the drinking party guy um Mm -hmm. like Jeff we used used to work together back in the day and like that that was just me like that was who I had been I didn't know who how to be anyone else my friends didn't know me as anyone else so I had to just like hide out um and sober up so when you know, about three to four years into my sobriety, um, I realized that the the thing that lit me up and the thing that made me most happy every year, I would do a post on my sober date, uh, just saying, you know, I made it another year, go me. These are the benefits in my life, and I would get um, messages from people being like. How did you do this you know please like help me i i have these problems with drinking i have these problems with feelings can you help me out and i that like more than anything was the most rewarding thing to me so i started van sober um just to kind of bridge the gap between there's a lot of people out there who maybe don't identify as alcoholics or the thought of going to aa is very uh, imposing or intimidating to them um and i wanted to start a less less formalized less to be here you have to be like have a very serious pronounced problem um to maybe support people who kind of fall in that gray area right now or who maybe just want to embrace mindful drinking or or reevaluate their relationship with alcohol so mm-hmm. um kick that off last early last year or a little bit the year before we ended up, we had like five or six meetings. We just meet at the Whole Foods on Canby Street and like did a couple of hikes and kept growing our numbers because there's a lot of people uh, who are interested in this lifestyle now. And then uh, of course COVID hit, so we haven't been able to do anything since. But, um, and then the podcast was just kind of like, you know there's a lot of sobriety and and self-help and self-development podcasts out there but um i i'm passionate about podcasting and i think uh again like it's it's an important topic i wanted to focus on it specifically for men because i think a lot of men struggle with addiction um and just struggle with their their feel like the vulnerability thing i talked about like mm-hmm. it's it, that's the societal thing where it's like and i know we're making progress and we're moving past that and we're becoming more <laughs> woke and open but, like, a lot of guys still cling to that that old vision of, like, you can't talk about your feelings. If you're having addiction or you're struggling with it, just just drink more. Don't deal with it. Um, so I kind of wanted to to create something that would help people address that.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're we're taught as, as men to take those emotions and just, like, bottle them up and then put them real, real deep. Yeah. And just never think about them at all. And we're taught um, by people I, who didn't know any better. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't people listen to, to our podcast and people will be like, oh, you're you're really uh, open and honest about your, your feelings and everything. And I'm like, I guess. I just like that's just the way I am. <laughs> I have a tattoo of a heart on my sleeve because I wear my heart on my sleeve.
0: Now, uh, for for yourself, your yourself, Graham, uh, you, you know, as mentioned in your intro, you've uh, spent you know, uh, the better part of the last two decades, working with people who struggle with addiction, substance abuse disorder. You have a background in addictions counseling. Um, you know, what, what inspired you, you know, as, as well as, uh, you know, being an, an actor and, uh, you know, a creator, but you are also someone who wants to help people. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to to give back to the community in this way?
3: Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I am like a 12 step dude. Like I, I love, uh, the, the rooms of AA. However, I, I, I do get the, the God thing being a, a fear thing for people or something they're not interested in. And that's great. There's a lot of like religious trauma that's out there. However, like I'm actually a very proud atheist Buddhist in the program who did a secular set step of, of steps. So I've actually come to know, uh, the universe more than I've come to know, like God. Right, And so yeah. so as a result of that, I think that I, I've actually positioned myself um, in a unique way because of my own belief systems to be able to help a wider swath of people. And uh, much like uh, Derek was saying, you know, like, f- actually, for my first eight years of recovery, I, I didn't tell anybody about it. Only people in, you know, the rooms knew about it. Um, and then I started to be more open about it. and uh, And then people started to reach out to me and they just started saying, you know, but I mean before I even get into that the bottom line is that when I needed help and I reached out on January 6, 2002 there was people there who were like me um, who held my hand who answered my phone calls at 11 o'clock at night, who walked me through another 24 hours so that I could stay sober one more 24 hours and then helped me to see things about myself that I needed to change when I wasn't willing to look at it. And not only that, but they didn't just, they weren't well-meaning friends who were like, mm, just do better. They were actually people who had knowledge who could help me, right? They weren't just, you know, they, but they were average working people. They weren't psychologists or counselors. They were just like, you know, I think, one of the first guys who really helped me was a um, was actually an actor from Los Angeles who was up here. Uh, he was up in Canada working on a project and we met and he's like, let me help you. And he was the same age as me. He had an amazing career. And yet he spent his days where he wasn't on set working on a, a Steven Spielberg miniseries, walking me through what I needed to do, right? And so he did this for me while he was like, you know, staying at the Pacific Palisades being treated like a rock star. He's meeting up with this like, you know, 15 days sober, shaky, you know, uh, uh, cocaine addicted alcoholic bar manager, right? And he's like, you know, taking his time, and I didn't understand it. And then I realized that the spiritual axiom is that um, when, when we give we get um, and, it, and it's, it's giving without the expectation of receipt, but then something else grows in my life, right? And so, I looked at him one day um, before he went back to Los Angeles and I said, you know, I can't thank you enough for everything you did for me. I was about three months sober at the time. And he said, one day you're going to do it for someone else. And that's all he said. And that's all he had to say. And I knew, I knew. And I even just said this the other day to someone. I said, like, I will never forget that debt that I owe to these anonymous faces who have helped me over the years. And all I have to do is one day at a time remember, and I don't do it every day, I forget. Or I'm an idiot or a self-centered or whatever, but I need to pay it back. And so when that phone rings or that, you know, that message comes in and someone says, hey, Graham, can you help me? I'm unsure. Then I sit down and I stop what I'm doing. I ask them those two questions. Can you control the amount that you consume? What happens when you quit? And then we begin to embark on a journey together. It's, Mm -hmm. it's my, um, it's my lot in life. You know what I mean? That's, you know, that's what I have to do. And I, and I'm okay with that debt. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's that's
2: beautiful. I, I found that's true of of a lot of sober people. Like we've just like we have experienced the the lowest points of addiction, and, and we've struggled, and we know that that pain, and we know how hard it is. Um, so I think most people who come out on the other side of that are are more than happy to more than happy to to help others out.
3: Yeah, I think yeah. it was Carl Young actually said he had never met a group of people who sought a power greater than themselves more than problematic drinkers or problem drinkers, because we sought it in the bottle, right? We sought this power greater than ourselves. We sought to be invincible or free of pain in alcohol. And then, and then in, in recovery or sobriety, whatever we want to call it, abstinence, uh, mindful abstinence, we, we, we sought to, to connect, and a good friend of mine who works at a recovery center in Surrey, he said uh, the opposite. And I know this is commonly said, but the opposite of addiction is connection Yeah, because addiction wants me alone, right? You know, addiction wow. wants me bottomed out in a corner in a, in an SRO with like my last 50 bucks. Yeah. You know, Cause that's the end game. Yeah. You
1: know? And Because uh, like for, for me, um, I, uh, I was bullied. Um, a lot as a child, yeah. and I always like I don't think anybody should be bullied, but the the trauma and the experience of going through that I think has really helped the empathy that I have um as an adult and and it's almost like that you know I remember hitting that rock rock bottom emotionally mm-hmm. um and just realizing that you know a thirteen year old kid couldn't care if I lived or died mm-hmm. um and just that flip in my brain said, I will never do that to somebody else. I don't care how much I hate that person. No one to feel that way. Um, So it's, it's interesting that, that there is those kind of parallels um, as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's how, and the thing is a lot of people, Jeff, uh, you know, and myself included uh, you know, chose the opposite road. You know, I, I was bullied and became a bully. You know, yeah. and then I, and then I hit my, I hit my rock bottom, you know, with alcohol and realized that, that I was a, you know, I was a, a, a what do they call it? A paper tiger? Is that what it's called? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the emperor wears no clothes. I had no power. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: You know, I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even, you know, do the daily life things, you know, and yet I was, uh, I spoke big and I was big as I sat on the bar stool, you know, reflecting on who I thought I was. Right. <laughs> wow.
0: You know, uh, th- uh, thank you both for, for sharing your experience and uh, uh, thank you, Jeff, as well for, for sharing yours. You know, uh, is, there, um, is there stigma? Is there, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I asked this question maybe knowing the answer, but is there is there stigma not only to, uh, you know, alcoholism, but is there also stigma to to reaching out for help? Like, Like, you know, do some people go, Like, you know, uh, I should, I should be strong enough to do this on my own. I I don't need anyone's help. I, um, you know, like, you know what, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna buy any alcohol this week and I'll be fine. And I don't need to talk to anyone. I don't need to go to a meeting, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Is there, and how much of that stigma is society and how much of that is just like stigma that we put on ourselves?
2: That's a a great point. because um, I do, you know, I'm the wrong guy to ask because I am like super duper proud of my sobriety. I will tell anyone who even like fleetingly mentions uh, personal growth or development or like anything, I'll be like, "Oh, listen, listen about this. I I don't drink, and here's why, and it's great." Um, but
1: yeah, to my podcast,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it. So I don't know if if there is the the external stigma that you're referring to. Like, I think, um, at least in the circles I travel in, like, talking about alcoholics doesn't conjure up the the same image as it used to. I know you'll still see shitty people on, like, Facebook anytime there's, like, a thread about... Um, I don't even know if people are still discussing inside anymore, but, like, the downtown, the, the Lower East Side, or people talking about uh homeless people or people there are people out there who will make um really shitty comments about addicts um or they'll make comments about how you know addiction is a choice and and these people deserve to die and you'll see a lot of other people addicts and non-addicts alike like spring up to to put them in their place so i think we're making progress i i do think the internal stigma, like the story we tell ourselves about weakness and how we have a problem and how it's rooted in the same shame that causes the problem in the first place. Right. Like we feel unworthy and we feel unloved and we feel ashamed of ourselves. And we feel that like, if we reach out to somebody uh, to tell them that we need help or reach a hand out to them, that they're going to reject us because that is a deep rooted fear we carry around in ourselves. So um, I, I think that's the real problem.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I th- I mean, I, I think the stigma still exists and it exists in a lot of different forms. Like I have, you know, hope of, of newer language and more openness and stuff like that. But I, I, I wonder, cause I don't know, right. Cause like, I wonder what it's like today for the let's say the, 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 the wine mom that we talked about. So the wine mom in Kitsilano or, or a a, a bougie neighborhood, can she reach out for help and abandon her, her crew? You know uh, you know, is there, if she looks at them and says, you know, I think I drink differently than other people um, you know, will will that be accepted? And, and will, and also I think the stigma too, is around like, do I seek, help and uh, for it, because there's a, one thing to admitting it, but then there's the ambivalence, right? And the ambivalence of change is, is very important because we sit and we sit and held by two, two, um, two leaders, so to speak, like one is I want to quit. And the other is I don't want to quit. And that's a normal place. And we used to call it resistance, but we truly understand it now as ambivalence and it's part of change. But so will the person admit, yes, I have this thing, but then what would they do about it? You know, will they change it? Will they change? You know, is it so? I, I think that the stigmas are still there. I mean, and like like Derek said, you know, we see the language that gets used around um, addiction with regards to willpower and not good enough and all this kind of stuff. Um, I just I wonder if it's you know how easy it is for people to change, and if they yeah, feel like well, they can. and it's so much more socially acceptable to drink. Yep, that
1: you know, if you tell someone every day when I go home from work. I drink a six pack to relax compared to every day I go home and I smoke crack to relax. It's two very different things, but both very disruptive. i recommend
3: doing both at the same time
2: yeah like if we had cocaine mom culture instead of yeah. wine mom culture yeah. like that that would probably not be as widely accepted but yeah. we're we're telling people that that alcohol is uh is okay to use for that
3: Yeah. But, and then now we have this new, new generations that are, you know, are more used to, um, you know, medicine cabinet culture, right? Like, cause I'm, 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 I'm old school, you know, I got sober in 2002. So I'm a broken raver, right? Like I, I like to, you know, get loaded and then eat some pills and snort some Coke and stuff like that. Like that's what I'm into Whereas like, kids today, um, they are, you know, uh, it's Xanax and opioids and like, you know, Oxy's out of the, out of the, out of grandma's medicine cabinet. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that's like. I mean, I, I can, I can relate to the the reasons why, but I, Mm -hmm. but that's not my, you know, and the thing is if we think about prescription medicine, which is over prescribed, um, and now I know we're getting into a different topic, but, um, it's a much more insidious and easy way to, you know, you can, you can eat some pills and go to work. Uh, and, you yeah. know, you need had six pack to wind down, or maybe you do, but not till you get home, but you're like, very well taken care of throughout the course of the day, if you're, uh, you know, taking oxys throughout the day, like, so uh, it's crazy, but you're all right, Jeff, it is more acceptable, right? And, and yeah. I do, get the, I do get the tilted head, you know, it's like, hey, you know, can I grab you a beer? And it's like, oh, no, I'm good. Thanks. I, I don't drink or, you know, most of the time, I just say no. And, and then you get the, oh, you know, like the weird right. tilted head that they look at you and they're like, mm, okay, mm, weird. Yeah, uh, I wonder if part of it too is that people, when,
1: when you say no, maybe they question what they're doing. And maybe, maybe they're like, maybe, why do I need to drink if this person also is not drinking and they want that camaraderie uh, yeah. to do it together rather than drinking alone.
3: I remember going to dinner at someone's house once it was this, this couple's house and they, they pull out the glass of wine and, and four glasses and they put it on the table and I'm like, ah, oh, actually I don't drink. And they're like, okay. And then they took the bottle, the bottle of wine and the, and the wine glasses and put them back into the cupboard. And I, in my mind, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what normal people do. Yeah. <laughs> me, if if I had like in my cups back in the day, if I pulled out the bottle and they were like, "I don't drink," I'm like, "Oh, good for you," you know. Yeah, or you know, for me, <laughs> like, like I just I was I was flustered at their at, <laughs> their, at their common decency. <laughs> uh, for,
0: yeah. uh, I'm I'm curious. You know, um, uh, uh, do you both remember uh, at that, you know, that part of your sobriety journey? Where you know uh where you were over the the proverbial hump where or are you ever over that proverbial hump like when you' were are at the part where you could say ah, each you know uh uh I feel more comfortable in, in my soberness, hmm. I feel the urge to drink less does that urge go away um you know i I essentially you know for. For myself and, and for listeners who maybe, who A, maybe haven't experienced alcoholism, or B, people who are alcoholics, who are wondering if it ever does get to, you know, an easier place. Like, do you remember how it was for you?
2: Um I, I think it depends on the individual. Like I'm, I'm at five years. I'm, I'm a little sober baby compared to Graham here. Um, and there's, I think you can still get urges. You can relapse, you can deal. There's, there's the addiction, which is like the act of drinking alcohol. And then there's the stuff that caused that. And I think a lot of people like, as you move through your sobriety journey, um, what kind of got me over the hump and where I did like for, for the first two or three years, it was just, I'm sober because I don't drink. And that was it. Like as long as I didn't have a drink of alcohol, I was a sober guy. And then at about three years, I started being like, well, why did I do that in the first place? Like there's still all these feelings. I still have like really negative self image. I still, uh, fear social situations. I still like, um, you know, can't can't discuss my emotions with people. Um, So I think the the biggest work that's gotten me through that is like starting to go to therapy and like join join these sober groups and have these conversations with people and just be as open and vulnerable as I can. Therapy has been like an absolute game changer for me. But I'm like, there's still so much work to be done there. Um, But that's kind of what got me over the like, uh, I'm not as afraid of, of drinking again now. Like when people, people ask me, are you ever going to drink again? And I'm like, no, I, I hope not, but I also don't want to get too complacent because it, it doesn't matter. Like there can be, you can have 20 years of recovery under your belt and something traumatic happens in your life and it's bad enough and you're right back to that place. So Um, I, I don't want to say that I'm at a point where I will never drink again. I would definitely like to never drink again. Um, but, uh, yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's the, that's a great, um, summation of, of the reality, right? Like I, I think for me, the first evidence that sobriety would work for me was my, my first 30 day chip because Um, in the cold light of day, I had never, ever been sober for 30 days in my adult life. And now I had told myself I had, I had done multiple sober Januaries and they lasted eight days, but I lied and told people it was the whole month. Like the, the, you know, the old adage of the older I get, the better I was like, and so I would just tell people that it wasn't true though. And so for the first time in my life, I had hard evidence of truth of, of an accomplishment of a, of a distancing. But like, you know, there's an old expression in, in the rooms, which is, you know, my next drink is only an arm's length away. And I can pick up again anytime. And that in tomorrow is not guaranteed. Um, you know, I would I would I prefer it if I don't drink? Yeah, yeah, I, I would. But I, I think the reminder is that I always just need to be where my feet are. And, and to just be here now. And in the present, because ultimately, I can tell you right now, I have never, um, in the last say decade of my sobriety, I have never craved a drink for joy. I have, I have only, and this is, I'm a problematic drinker. I have only craved a drink for escape from pain. And I, I remember I was sitting in a meeting, like maybe like five, six years ago, and I was in a tremendous amount of pain, just life pain. I had like, I had screwed up a whole bunch of stuff and it was all falling down on me and it was a disaster. And I was sitting in this meeting and it was a perfectly fine meeting, perfectly fine. Everything was good about it. Um, And all I could think was about going to the liquor store and getting a case of beer, getting an eight ball Coke and calling it a week, you know, and just like, and blowing away at that time, like, you know, whatever, 14 years sobriety, because I just felt so horrible. So even that in itself is an indicator to me of how tenuous it is without, you know, doing the quote unquote work that it, it, it's, it's not, it's not a joy thing. It's it's an escape thing. I don't want to have a glass of wine with dinner. I don't want to have a Corona on a beach. I want to get escaped, right? And if we think about that, and like if we want to get into a like max, what is the ultimate escape, right? The ultimate escape is no longer existing. And so, really, when we look at it on that large level, what is the person? What is it? A person who is escaping from pain is escaping from, and what lengths would they go to to escape? Right. And now we're getting into some, you know, dark territory of like self-harm and that kind of thing. Right. And that's a reality. And I like what, what Derek said earlier about, you know, connecting with men, connecting with each other to talk about their emotions, because men do, um, you know, uh, die by suicide at higher numbers, especially in certain age categories than anybody else. And it's and it's a reality. We and so, you know, like this is a guy, you know, for me talking 19 years sober, being totally honest that there are times where escape is a thought process and alcohol used to work right, right. so they you don't know, that's so that's you know but in answer to your question you know, I was sitting sorry, long one. I was sitting on, a, I was sitting on a beach one day. I was at this meeting in Hawaii on Kauai and this big burly guy who I'd made friends with covered in tattoos, looked like a hell's angel. Amazing dude, right? From Minneapolis. Turns out he was a hairstylist. I thought he was a gangster. And I'm um, <laughs> sitting there and, and we, we'd made like, his name was Khan. I really dope dude. And uh, he's sharing and he's looking out at the waves on the beach because we do meetings on the beach in Hawaii. He's looking out and he's like, he's like, I don't know a lot. You know, he's got his sunglasses on. I can see a tear coming down the side of his face. He goes, "I don't know a lot, you know, but I do know this, and it's that I want to live today. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about just living, but it was about quality of life. And that's Mm -hmm. where that's where the rubber meets the road for me abstaining from alcohol.
2: I Um, love that.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Wow, Um,
0: Jeff, I I I think that that is a beautiful place to and uh today's conversation. Absolutely, uh, I, yeah. Thank you. Thank you both very much for sharing. Uh it is, you know, um uh you know what you said Graham about being present, you know, uh, it being a, a big part of that that journey towards the healing. Um I'm very I'm very glad to be present here with the three of you and to uh, anyone listening to this podcast, I'm glad that you are taking time to be present and just listening to a podcast. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, hopefully that, you know, even just us chatting together and sharing uh, can be a nice reminder that, oh, you know, uh, connection, just like, you know, just like the both of you said, connection, hundred mm-hmm. percent. That is, uh, that is what, that is what we all really need. So I'm glad yeah. we had a chance to connect.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for uh, inviting me on. like I said, I, I love talking about this stuff so
0: yeah, yeah.
3: thanks for thanks for having me on It's really great to uh, connect with you too Derek. yeah,
0: yeah. now uh, for for those who uh, for our listeners who are interested in learning more uh, about your uh, about your works, uh, Derek, where can they
2: find you? Uh, I have a kind of sober themed Instagram account. Uh, it is at van underscore sober. Um, if you're local to Vancouver, the lower mainland, or even if you're not, we'd, we'd love to still have you if you're ever in the area, uh, we're on meetup.com. Just look for Van Sober there. Uh, and my podcast is called Brobriety as referenced many times in this episode and you can find it at the podcast store. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, and and for uh, yourself, Graham, where where can perhaps people uh, catch you? Where would they be able to catch you?
3: Well, these days, uh, you could catch me walking down a driftwood cluttered beach on the west coast of British Columbia somewhere. <laughs> Uh, sometimes with a dog, sometimes with my wife, sometimes with my
0: wife and a dog at the same time. <laughs> sometimes with an, with an, uh, uh, a whale breaching, uh, uh,
3: yeah, a humpback <laughs> breaching, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to. like right. it, This pandemic gave me the opportunity to, you know, feel what retirement felt like, so I'm kind of enjoying that for a while. <laughs> but, yeah,
1: just to clarify, Graham is not inviting people to stalk him.
3: No, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. I'm on a driftwood beach. There's many in British Columbia that would be hard to find me. Uh, but you know, if, you if know. anybody is out there and they are uh, struggling um, with, with substance misuse disorder or behavioral disorders or, or behavior addiction or whatever, or mental health, like just in general, I just, you know, last thing I want to say is like, I hope, I hope you reach out because there's a lot of people out there that really care about you and, um, and want you to do well. I want you to be better, like, like in your own life, you know, and to seize it. So
0: thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Graham. Beautiful. Yeah um absolutely resources out there uh and yeah you know uh connect connect people who want to help you just like people who have helped uh derek and graham and people who have helped uh, me and jeff in different ways in our own journeys uh man you know gratefulness present love Mm -hmm. it Uh, and jeff uh for people who want to know more about fear of science uh where can they discover us You can find us on the
1: social medias uh, at Science Fears on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, And then you can uh, check out our website at fearofscience.com.
0: Everyone, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you're staying safe and staying well. And until the next time we get to connect, please take care and have a great day.